Welcome to Living Well into the Future. I'm your host, Julie B. Adler. This series brings men and women ranging in age from their teens through their 90s to discuss food, housing, climate, and health. Our guests are problem solvers, solution makers. They live and work all over the country. Their projects range in scope from local to international. They're innovators and implementers, founders and developers. Learn what their contributions and experiences were and are, their challenges and their successes. Our goal is to spark your discussions among and between generations to inspire action toward a healthy and secure future for all. Our current series focuses on sustainability and resilience. You'll meet people with workable solutions who address the many challenges to our health and security due to the extremes of weather, loss of habitat, and loss of biodiversity. In this episode, we'll be speaking with three generations of individuals. You'll hear from the early and current leaders of the Center for Ecotechnology, an environmental organization that began in Western Massachusetts and now, after almost 50 years, serves communities throughout the U.S. We'll also speak with a current college student who has set his foot in the same river. The Center for Echo Technology, which was founded in 1976, introduced practices to reduce the human impact on the environment that have since become mainstream. Some of these practices are familiar, others less so. Some you take for granted, others may inspire you to adopt them. We'll speak with Laura DeBester, who joined CET in 1977, when the founder hired her with the proceeds of CET's first grant. Laura and her late husband, Alan Silverstein, as directors of CET, were instrumental in developing the organization, along with Nancy Nylon, who joined CET in 1982. You'll hear Nancy in conversation with Laura. We'll also speak with Ashley Muspratt, the new president of CET, who will bring us up to date on the current programs and practices of CET that address energy issues as well as what to do with our waste. To round out the generational perspective, we'll hear from Jack Anderson, senior at Massachusetts College of Liberal Arts, who has been active in working for sustainable building practices. He's interviewed by Owen Brown, who is the current intern for Living Well Into the Future. Laura, you were certainly a pioneer getting into the environmental area. How did you come to that? I came to it basically shaped by more values than anything else. Those values were really at that time in the 60s, back to the earth and working cooperatively. My degree at that point was in counseling, but I was questioning everything. So I thought maybe I should question that as well and look at something very different, which would be science. And so I came to a science-based organization, but brought with it the perspective of community and change. Nancy, how did you get to CET? The Center for Ecotechnology has a, a mission of minimizing our impact on the natural ecology of the earth. And so it's a broad mission. And I had come 
in through an energy efficiency and renewable energy lens. I was interested in how people learn and eventually worked my way to graduate school in environmental education. And my master's was the role of education in the diffusion of innovation. I moved to New Mexico, got trained as an energy auditor, and then ended up in Williamstown and came to CET where they were really the only organization around that was doing this sort of work. About Berkshire County, we're talking about a place with 32 separate towns. It seems to me that starting innovative programs would be very difficult. What kind of skills, Laura, first did you bring to this effort that brought these projects from initiation to completion? The skills really were, first of all, science-based. And I think we've stayed with this. Nancy would probably second it to be non-alarmist non-dogmatic, non-zealots, but really demonstrating the positive. I came out of a period where we were looking at what are the alternatives to nuclear power? What are the ways that women and other can be for not second-class citizens? What are the ways that we can promote peace and be against and those kinds of things? And so I really was a fighter. <laughs> and I didn't want to be that. I didn't want that to be my Emma, my mode. So coming to an organization where it could really shape it, let's demonstrate the positive. Let's show that things work. Let's be aspirational. And then let's look at the community and let's be science-based. And then everything else is problem-solving finding the right people and the right places and developing the partnerships and the collaborations and putting things together piece by piece and being able to analyze, do we have the skills? Do we have the bandwidth? So it wasn't so much, we're going to bring you the answers, but it was to more to try to say, can we be the intermediaries between the laboratories and the scientists and the people and figure out what works here? And what doesn't work? So really the first projects was to put a freestanding passive solar greenhouse at the Berkshire Garden Center. Does passive solar work? And let's monitor it and what can it do? And then over the years, 10,000 people went and could tour it and could see what it was. And then we learned that yes, indeed, you could produce vegetables, you could store the heat in the pad. We made a lot of mistakes, but over time, Technology moves on and technology moves forward. I think when we think about environmentalism, many people think of the trees and the frogs and the rivers and all of those things. And I think CET was one of the early organizations that looked at people and buildings and our activities and how we could make our daily activities with less impact on the earth. But if you said to someone you were a building scientist, they wouldn't really know what you mean. And now that has evolved so far with certifications and training and building science is real and moisture and all of those things, indoor air quality, which is a huge field. So I think we've all grown together over a 40, 50 year period. Yeah, I think that's really true. We used to try to explain ourselves as, well, we're an organization that works with the built environment and the impacts that we're having by building and living in our buildings. Now, I, I think CT has expanded and is continuing to look at the best ways to have 
positive impact, but that did set us apart from being a land trust or a land preservation organization. And it's been interesting because over the years, we've had some challenges in that respect as we've been moving toward the use of renewable energy and some of the controversy surrounding land use and what land is acceptable for putting up solar panels, putting up wind turbines. It sometimes can set us at odds with our colleagues and friends. So finding the common ground and the positive solutions has just been such an important part of our history, but it's it's not always easy. <laughs> We've been speaking with Laura DeBester and Nancy Nylon, and now we're going to fast forward to the new president of CET, Ashley Muspratt. She joined CET in 2019. Ashley has an MS in environmental engineering and a PhD in energy and resources from the University of California. Berkeley. Prior to joining CET, she founded and led a waste-to-energy startup in sub-Saharan Africa, which converted human fecal sludge into industrial fuel. The company's investors included the Gates Foundation, USAID, and the French Development Agency. Recently, she was on Massachusetts Governor Maura Healey's transition team on climate readiness, resiliency, and adaptation. Ashley, is CET now almost 50 years after its founding? Is it still a boots-on-the-ground kind of place? It is definitely a boots-on-the-ground place. I would say we've certainly evolved a lot over the last 50 years, but I think two things that are absolutely core to our identity and that make us really unique or one, we are focused on solutions and finding solutions for people to improve the environment, but also at the same time, improve their economic condition or improve their health. And we're customer oriented. We really hold the customer's hand from our initial interaction all the way through to implementation. And this cuts across all of our, the comprehensive services that we have for waste and energy, because we're focused on getting results. And we know waste and energy for most people aren't top priorities. If you're a small business owner or a homeowner, like these these things aren't necessarily top of mind like they are for those of us who work here. We are cognizant of that and just try to make it as easy as possible for customers to adopt solutions and to integrate them seamlessly into their existing operations or ways of working. When I spoke with Laura and Nancy, they pointed out that when they started, climate issues were not even in anyone's mind, it was in a response to the energy shortage. And you have mentioned that we're talking about not only sustainability and climate, but also people's health and their economic well-being, so that these things are interrelated. It's not some abstract, oh, climate change is happening above us, but it's happening with with respect to how we live each day and how our health and the costs and all of those things are affected. 
That's so true, Julia. I think climate change, one, impacts all of us, and two, is a really cross-cutting issue that, like you said, impacts health, impacts the economy, and is impacting the entire environment. Now that we've heard the current thoughts about the motivation for CET's programs from Ashley Musbrat, let's go back to Laura and Nancy and hear what they were thinking in their own words. I know some people were thinking about climate change, but it predates a lot of the concerns that are now about getting off of fossil fuels. At that time, it was really a response to the oil embargo and to the shortage of oil, and to realizing that 90% of every dollar that was spent on a fossil fuel left the area. We didn't have fossil fuels in Berkshire County. So I was looking at that a lot from the economic, from the jobs, from the cost, and how to save people money, but also a community perspective. Let's keep our dollars in our own community. And what can we do? And how can we do that? There might be more about that, I think, as we learn more. There is definitely the pollution and the environmental benefits to that. So it's the economic, the environmental, the health. All of those things were still there. I think that that's exactly right. We were alerted to how vulnerable we were. It was growing out of the 70s where we were having our first environmental laws and the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act. And so there was a real concern about the environmental impacts of these fossil fuels that we were using and in burning them and in, while we ran our cars and heated our homes. We hadn't even gotten to the point that we could, oh my goodness, change the climate. We weren't even there yet. And yet all of these problems led to the same types of solutions that are helping us to combat climate change as well. This seems like old hat now because when we started, we were the pioneers. Who were some of your first partners and, and what was the common purpose that joined you with them? There are different levels. There are the funders who, again, you have a common purpose in looking at that, whether it be it the government or a foundation. And then there are the community partners where the goals align. And sometimes the community partner, for example, with making energy improvements, it was the solar bank. We had a community development organization saying we need 0% loans so that we can help our homeowners make energy improvements. Financing was a big deal. There wasn't the money. There were Exxon overcharged monies that came to the states, but we could only spend 1% to distribute them. This was 1980. So for $100,000 to distribute in loans or financing, you've only got $1,000 to run it. We couldn't run a program with $1,000 and have a staff person or a telephone or do outreach or marketing, anything. And so it was the community development agency that came to us and said, we'll help fund this if you'll provide the service. So that was a great partnership. We've partnered with the hospital on a few different programs. One was to help, again, low-income pregnant women reduce their exposure to toxins, whether it be mercury or secondhand smoke or household hazardous products, things like that. We worked with towns. They were partners. Okay, we need to have a household hazardous waste collection day. Those are expensive. One town can't do it. It's too expensive. 
Can you coordinate it so our many towns can cooperate and hire one person and anyone from any town can go to one of those days so we increase the opportunity and the towns work together? I would say the Chambers of Commerce ended up being our partners in terms of getting access to businesses who are just starting to think about energy efficiency and maybe a little skeptical about working with an environmental organization. So how to lend that kind of credibility to us for us. When I was first a circuit rider, the Cooperative Extension Service, in fact, was our partner. Sometimes even funding got channeled through other organizations to help support our programs. Berkshire Community Action Council has been a steady partner throughout as they work with low-income households and how do we help with both services and outreach for each other. And then there are all the funding partners. And then there's BCC, Berkshire Community College. We offered an job training program there. Nancy, you had the charge of going out into individual communities in those early days. What program were you working on and what response did you get when you went into the communities? They called me the energy circuit rider. So I rode the circuit and and I worked with the communities with populations 5,000 and under to help write grants for them because there was all this money available for them to make their town halls and their DPW departments more energy efficient, but they didn't really have staff. So nobody could write the grants. And so they were thrilled to have somebody come in, even if I was an outsider. It was a great way for me to learn the Berkshires. But I, I think, as Laura alluded to, we've always had a we meet people where they are approach. And so we would come in and say, how can we help? And how do we get you what you need? So I would say I was well received. It was a wonderful job. It was hard, but I still drive by the GPW on Route 9 and say, oh, they still have those insulated garage doors, thanks to that. And then they started moving toward renewables as well. But a lot of it was just, let's get our buildings weatherized and in good shape. Laura gave me a long list of projects that you worked on. The solar hot water heaters, supplemental heat grants, converting waste to energy, home composting and food waste, materials exchange, recycling, energy audits, reusable store bags and radon audits. Maybe you can start talking about the initial projects. Big program that Laura can talk to that they got started. And it's so interesting because they were starting it here in Berkshire County. I was doing it in New Mexico, but at the same time, it was the concept of an energy audit. How do we know what to do with our homes? We need to go in and take a look at the insulation levels and how leaky they are and so on. And so Laura, you know more about how that energy audit program started. Energy audits didn't exist. So we had to find a shop teacher who could teach unemployed people. We developed a training program. There was no computer. My job, aside from hiring the unemployed people, was then to do the quality control. It was two visits, one to collect the data. I would review every calculation, and then you'd go back to the homeowner and present a report, and we would type it up. And and so that's where it started. I think in that year, I don't know how many energy audits we did in the Berkshires, 
but we had a $96,000 grant from the federal government to train unemployed people and then to go out and promote energy audits. And then over time, they really evolved. At that time, it was only education. You couldn't do one thing while you were there except for teach people because there was a lot of fear about people going into homes and doing things. So that, again, this was the late 70s. Now it's very different. And a lot of that also because of some of the CET's initiatives. Then what about implementation? Nothing. <laughs> Obviously, that's what was needed. And I don't remember exactly when we started to really develop the programs and the, the infrastructure, but I think we worked a lot with the state. And then there was the Mass Save program, actually, that came into being. That would be an example of a program that was institutionalized within the utility companies, still only doing education. And then there started to be the development of the infrastructure and the guidelines and the insurance requirements and the assistance, because I think that would be a, a premise of CET. Like, how do you do it? You can teach the person to fish, but really, it's the, how do you combine all of those things so that someone can do what they need to do and have the, have the education and then the whole infrastructure locally? And those are more jobs. And those also help keep the money local. How long did your program exist? It was probably just a couple of years. We applied to MassSave. We wanted to be the vendor to deliver the MassSave audits. I would still say we were the most qualified. But at that point, they were picking larger companies that would be able to do it statewide. So the idea of working with a small nonprofit organization in the Berkshires wasn't possible. Years later, Many of the organizations, our allies, our friends, philosophically, we all got together and created a nonprofit where the purpose was to have an ability to deliver programs statewide for the utilities. And then that became a successful model. Let's get back to your various enterprises over those years. So converting waste to energy, it sounds like that was the genesis. Wasn't that the, the original idea? That was the genesis that I, I think happened years later after the founder left, we started working with farms. But I would say, again, early on, the idea of converting waste to energy, one of the things that CET had a role on the Pittsfield Resource Recovery Commission and helped set up the, at then, Vicon, which was taking waste and burning it and converting it to energy. And of course, now that's no longer happening. There's been a huge shift in how we look at waste and knowing that, that burying it or burning it might not be long-term solutions that we need to look at recycling and better ways to manage waste. And so again, it became looking at how do we bring something that's more sustainable, I'll use that word, to our communities, to our households, and make it easy and affordable and a positive step that everybody can do and feel good about. I just want to kind of add to that because in part of the waste to energy that we worked on as well is working with some of the first farms to do a feasibility of study of using their manure, which was a waste issue as it was getting into streams and so on, how to capture it, and then through a process of anaerobic digestion, contain the methane and use it as a gas to turn a turbine. And now dairy farms are 
producing their own energy and then selling their net metering credits to make money so that they can survive. And it ties into CET's work with now in Massachusetts, there's a ban on for large institutions who produce a lot of food waste, they can no longer throw it away. It has to go to either an anaerobic digester or to a compost facility. And so it's come full circle that we're working now on both ends of the process. And as things get institutionalized and like, when is it, when does CET have a role to come in and jumpstart things? And then when is it time to, okay, somebody else is going to run with that now and we can move on to the next thing and we're look at what our strengths are, getting things started. And then once they're institutionalized, somebody else can take those over. What is anaerobic composting or <laughs> digestion? It's taking a, taking a material and having it composted and digrade without oxygen. Anaerobic is without oxygen. So they're containing that material and having it break down and form into a gas, and then they contain the gas and use it. And the precursor to that was the opposite of anaerobic digestion, which is backyard composting. And that's really where we started. That was, again, an early grant. We were going to teach people how to compost. And that's all that grant from the federal government would do, would be to do education. And then the state had money that they could only use for hardware. So we married those two. And we had a contest for Massachusetts folks to design composting bins made out of plastic that had been collected in Massachusetts. So we ended up with two composting bins. We had no idea whether they would be adopted. We ended up with about I don't know, three to 5,000 composting bins. We promoted that. We taught people about composting. And one weekend went to a parking lot in Springfield and distributed so many composting bins. And that was, again, the demonstration of people need the education and they need the tools. You have to make it easy and affordable. And then again, communities could start to distribute those to their residents And that was a program that eventually became institutionalized and it still exists. But the piece about it, which I think is so exciting, was that people learned a new technology. They learned that they could just take their food waste, bring it to their backyard, turn it around, turn it over, add some leaves or leaves and carbon. So you had the carbon and the nitrogen, create that black gold, which you can put in your gardens, reduce your waste. And for many people, this was a very accepted habit, but people also realized that this technology wasn't so scary. So we started to say, can we expand this? Can we bring it to supermarkets? Can we bring it to restaurants? Can we bring it to farms? People, they weren't saying, oh, we don't want it. We don't want food waste on a farm. They didn't have that reaction because they understood that it could be managed. It didn't have to smell. It didn't have to be ugly. It would provide a new revenue stream for a farm. Haulers could take it. The supermarkets could save money. All of the benefits. So it was really trying to work on that kind of the whole thing. And then eventually it becomes anaerobic digestion as technology moves forward. Although there are still both... We've only talked about a few of the programs that CT initiated. Let's hear about some others. The energy audits started, and then there was a very interesting program, somewhat similar. It was called SWAID, Solar Utilization, Economic Development, and Employment. 
And that was a three-part program from the federal government that looked at the technology, low-income people, and training. So it was three agencies that actually collaborated, surprisingly enough. And so again, we trained people about solar, starting, of course, with energy efficiency. And then we worked with the low-income agency, BCAC, to identify low-income homes. And then we selected three kinds of low-cost supplemental passive solar heating systems. So this is a good example of things that didn't work. One was a thermosiphoning air panel, which you put on your house. The other was just a pane of south-facing glass just to get that supplemental heat in. And the third one was an attached solar greenhouse. And I think one of the things that we learned was that thermosiphoning air panels only worked when the federal government paid for them. Nancy, when did CET start working on the recycling programs? The 90s. We had a new staff person, Amanda Graham, came to us, and she had been working on recycling. She said, why aren't you doing recycling? It sounds like all the things that you're doing would work really well in that area. And it was the year that, I don't know if you remember, that there was an orphaned garbage barge. There was so much garbage in New York that the landfill had filled up. So there was all this garbage on a barge and nobody would take it in. And so anyway, it just became a symbol for our garbage crisis. So we went from our energy crisis fueling our first 10, 15 years to the garbage crisis, bringing in how do we deal with our waste? And first of all, how do we reduce it? How do we find another reuse for it? And then realizing these recycling and composting, those are disposal solutions. It was the 90s and and the state was beginning to address it, but that actually, uh, it comes back to your first point about 32 small towns. Where do we do it? What are the economies of scale? How do we get waste or recyclables to market? All of those things. What do we do about this waste to energy plant where there's what's called a put or pay contract? So if you don't bring the waste, you're going to pay instead of having it be an incentive. And the state realized this was a problem. They decided they were going to build six what are called materials recycling facilities around the state so that there could be a centralized place and people could bring it or haulers could bring it. And they would start in Western Massachusetts, I think, so that if it didn't work, there wouldn't be it wouldn't be such a problem. And it turned out that was the only one that was ever built. And it was here in Western Massachusetts, and it's the Springfield Materials Resource Recycling Facility. And it's and that's where many of our towns bring our recyclables because they can be collected and bailed and find the markets. And we can bring them there and negotiate good things that work for our towns within the changing markets, whether it's profit sharing or other ways of working it out financially. So this is now beyond food waste. You're talking about materials waste. This is pre-food waste, yes. This is oh, the card, the plastics, the glass, the things that we separate at home and uh-huh. put it, and then they go to our transfer station or the hauler picks them up. And many, many towns bring them to the to Springfield, and then they can go to market. And how was CT involved in that? This is what Nancy did. Before a town could bring anything to join the materials recycling facility, a town needed to pass a bylaw requiring its haulers to be able to pick up separated waste. Nancy can maybe comment on that a little bit better. 
The town had to have a mandatory recycling bylaw on the books, and that was part of my circuit riding evolution, is to then go work with, with communities to educate them to design a bylaw and pass it at their city council or their town meetings, and so then they could participate. It was their ticket to participating in the MRF, the Materials Recycling Facility. So we, and then later- And there were educated people. How do you have, what goes into a recycling bin? <laughs> oh, right. We did all the education programs. We went on community television and taught people what they could recycle and not recycle. We went to schools and kids did little competitions of how fast they could sort materials. It was a great environmental education program. So we would take these problems and we'd say, where might we help educate at what level? And something like recycling, you can do from children to adults and others, you need to work with the homeowners or you need to work with the contractors. So you take the issue, see what the target audience might be for the change that we're looking for, and then gear our programming to meet their needs, understand the barriers for them to change. Oh, I don't know. What did they need information? Did they need money? What did, did they need staff? And we would try to then provide that where we could. And so we just kept chipping away. And yeah, it's a process. <laughs> and it's a great model. I think when CET was founded, the, the concept was that there would be a CET every 100 miles. And of course there isn't. I think the closest thing then was probably the cooperative extension service. So yeah. there were many of those more looking at food and canning and those kinds of things, but not so much of the built environment. And many people would come and say, oh, I wish we had a CET. It, what is so interesting as you're talking is to see where you started with hands-on community in education has in fact now been translated into accepted policies in the mainstream. Wow, you, you know? said that very well. I know. And I'd like to think that we had really thought that all, that we knew that was going to happen. <laughs> it's so interesting now looking, like you say, people, many people know what a LEED certified building was. Oh my goodness. There was that is so far from where we were when we started that sometimes we feel like, boy, has anything changed? And then we realize, oh no, the, this is part of the discourse. This is These are issues that people are now saying, this is the issue of our time. And it's very heartening to see that as, as much as it's still so challenging to see how far we still have to go. It does start person to person with little changes that then can turn into larger things. And some of it is influencing policy, but some of it, we really needed the policy to make it possible to do what we were doing. So it's very interactive, this hands-on. Yeah. I think what you said, Julie, was correct, that it, we're successful when these practices become mainstream. Yeah. That's, I think that really is the goal to take something and see and to watch it. And whether, so whether it gets institutionalized or whether the market just works so that a compact fluorescent bulb in its first iteration was 10 times more expensive than an incandescent, as Nancy would say, was heavy 
and would tip your lamp over. Put a little demonstration. Or... Yeah, put the lamp in, and the lamp would fall over because it's like a. <laughs> oh well. I... And it had a little, and, and it had a little bit of mercury in it, so you had to dispose of them more carefully. And so that's evolved to them to now having LED lamps that last way longer, and the light is fine. And again, looking at the performance and the cost. And all of and the disposal, looking at so many different aspects of a product to see and and then so, moving the marketplace. Is that so when we're talking about the energy audit, you would talk about replacing the incandescent light bulbs. You were early in that as well. There was no option in the 70s. And later on, really. The way that came about was when the environmental organizations and the Conservation Law Foundation, we went to the public utilities and we said, if let's put energy efficiency on a level playing field with new power supply. And if you can save a kilowatt hour less expensively than you can produce it, you should be directly investing in saving a kilowatt hour. And we won that case. And that was, again, a big shift. So now that the energy audits that the utilities were mandated to provide included, and we said, and we can make those energy audits, not make them very cost effective, because when you go into a home, you can just replace their light bulbs. So now instead of it being a cost to rate payers to have someone go into a home, it's going to be a savings to rate payers because the rate payers are going to instantly save on their electric bills because they're going to have new lights that use 10% of the electricity. So it's those kinds of shifts in the landscape of delivering those programs. And that's continued to evolve. One other thing that you worked on, you mentioned the materials disposal, but you did materials exchange, which is fascinating. When and how did that come about and why? All of who of us worked on it. But again, you look at the all these materials which, that can't be recycled, but they have that they, they could be reused. And so there was, there were starting to be approaches to doing that. Many of them were early databases, but they were cumbersome and they weren't very successful, even though a lot of money was being spent trying to develop those. You see the problem. And so we're saying maybe we can do something a little bit different because we're going to have a person to actually facilitate the exchange. So we started the Western Massachusetts Materials Exchange. We had a, it was a VISTA. AmeriCorps VISTA person, we participated in a, in a program where we took and trained interns and to work on these projects. And again, it wasn't so successful, but there were some very interesting other programs that came out of it. One was called Materials Flows Through the Community to say, hey, could one company or town's waste material become the feedstock for another? Or could things that are being thrown away be used as a PlayStation or an arts art supply? But everything can't be an art supply. You want we wanted to get a little bit bigger than that or different from that. Eventually, that all of those small projects led to starting the eco building bargains. We realized you need a facility. People want to go there. And then we can get all of those surplus materials from either the homeowners or the contractors or the companies and have them be available at much reduced prices and have landlords and homeowners be able to improve their homes much more affordably with good quality materials. 
I was involved with the materials exchange back in the day. You the what? Can you remember when that is? It was in the 1990s. It was the beginning of our entree into recycling and reuse. And, and we thought of ourselves as a matchmaking service. And so I, I remember it starting with packing peanuts. There were so many packing peanuts in the world and you'd receive these boxes of packing peanuts and then you have to throw them away. No, somebody else could use them like the, the store down the street. Oh, they need to be shipping things. So could we match them together? And, and the challenge was timing because somebody would need to get rid of something but it, the timing would be slightly off from when the person, we found the person who needed it. So that's what led us to feel like we need a place. We need somewhere to put them while somebody's waiting to, uh, <laughs> to find them. We started the, the restore in Springfield, and then that evolved to be eco-building bargains. And what was so cool about that, a lot of things, but we were in a pretty small space, maybe 5,000 square feet, and it just got full, too full. And, and we looked for a bigger building in Springfield. And it was also an opportunity to buy a building and uh, renovate it to high performance building standards. So it was a time where we could actually demonstrate both of our strengths, find a place for our waste materials and house them in a building that was state-of-the-art, energy-efficient renovation, which is so challenging, in an old big building in Springfield that needed to be renovated. And that lives on. So that is that is one of the biggest reuse, building reuse box stores probably in the country. Now that Laura and Nancy have so eloquently described the beginnings and evolution of their programs, let's hear from Ashley Muspratt to find out how those programs started in the 70s, 80s, and 90s have now grown in size and scope. Ashley, the organization is now blossomed to have 95 employees, and now they're in many states. What are your programs? At the highest levels, we help people and businesses save energy and reduce waste. On the energy side, we work in the MassSave program and also provide residential energy services for public utilities. So our staff are out every day in people's homes and businesses, conducting energy assessments and providing recommendations for how they can make their buildings more energy efficient and also how they can electrify their buildings to, to decarbonize them. So we'll provide a whole suite of recommendations to customers and then help them identify contractors and help them pick and choose the best solutions and help them sequence solutions in an optimal fashion. We similarly provide waste consulting services. So these are paid for by the Mass Department of Environmental Protection, don't, so they don't cost our customers anything. We'll go in and help any business or institution in Massachusetts and several other states strengthen their waste management practices. We work with businesses everywhere on the spectrum, from those who are setting up their first cardboard recycling to those that want to be zero waste and need help chipping away at the margins. Um, 
We did quite a bit of work in wasted food prevention and diversion. This has really become a, an area of a unique expertise for us over the last five years, where we help commercial businesses set up waste prevention and diversion programs, and also advise solid waste management districts at the kind of municipal or state level on investments in infrastructure that would be necessary to have a thriving wasted food marketplace. So composting facilities and anaerobic digesters and having a preferable policies that support food rescue and donation and that sort of thing. And then also under the waste umbrella, we are involved in deconstruction and reclaiming and rehoming building materials. So the hub of that work is our reclaimed building materials store, Eco Building Bargains, which is in Springfield. We're the largest store of its kind in New England. I like to say it's like a Home Depot, but all reclaimed materials. We've got kitchen cabinet sets, lighting, plumbing fixtures, doors, windows, pretty much anything you would need for home renovation. We work with homeowners and contractors to source donations for the store, and then we sell the product out of the store as well as online. That's quite a big remit for a final question. <laughs> do you have any advice to listeners about what they can do to aid in decarbonization and create a healthier environment for themselves and their families? Sure. I think all of us can make a difference. And in fact, tackling climate change requires that all of us are willing to make some changes and adopt new solutions from an energy perspective, whether you're served by a public utility or one of the investor-owned utilities. It's always a good idea to get an energy audit if you haven't had one in the last five years. That's a really great starting point for getting to know your building better and starting to prioritize different options that you have. Between the new mass save incentives and the Inflation Reduction Act, we all have pretty huge electrification bank accounts now to steal a term from rewiring America, which I think is really clever. There's just massive incentives available to electrify heating, home heating systems and appliances and to install renewable energy. So I would definitely suggest getting an energy audit. There's also quite a bit of money available for EVs, both chargers and the vehicles themselves. As an EV owner, I can tell you that 99% of the time your, your driving range is more than you could possibly need. That transition is very easy. And then on the waste side, wasted food is one of the biggest sources of methane emissions in the U.S., which we all know our 30 plus more warming potential than CO2. Diverting your food scraps and starting composting in your backyard or with a provider is, I think, a, a simple step that households can take to improve their waste management. Thank you very much, Ashley Muspratt, for speaking with me today. Thank you, Julia. It was a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Having heard where CET is today from Ashley Muspratt, let's give Laura DeBester an opportunity to reflect on how far it has come. I think that we're part of history. 
And I'm so proud of the work of CET. I'm so proud that it's there and its legacy and that it's growing. We've been sending our materials to the University of Massachusetts archives because Western Massachusetts, going back to your first question, was a pioneer in the environmental movement and in doing some of these innovative programs that are now mainstream. And the university feels like people who want to study the environmental movement of the 70s, 80s, and 90s will come to the university and they'll learn and they can learn from what CET has done. I think we have to really also think about the young people. And I know I might have changed, but I don't think so. When, when we start talking about climate change a decade or two decades ago, children were scared. When they saw an inconvenient truth, they were sad and they were scared. And we need to really know that these are sensitive beings and that we have a responsibility that we can, through our actions, through what we do, we can make a better future for all the young people and they can be involved in it as well. Thank you, Laura DeBester. We've heard now about the past and the present of CET in the environmental movement. So as Laura indicates, we need to look to the future. And we have Owen Brown, a sophomore at Massachusetts College of Liberal Arts, speaking with Jack Anderson, a senior at MCLA. Jack Anderson, first of all, thank you for doing this. Let's just get started. What are some of the things that you're kind of involved with on campus that relate to climate? Yeah, so I do a good amount here on campus. Besides being president of our fraternity, Pi Upsilon Pi, I also am model UN chair for the political science club and I'm also a volunteer coordinator at the MCLA volunteer center we do stuff with a lot of different other organizations I've been most interested in doing stuff that's regarding food insecurity and also environmental stuff with kind of an angle of justice in a way so obviously there's certain things that or not justice, but maybe equity. So what, what are some of the things that you're kind of related to climate? So the main project that I was focusing on a lot last semester was I worked with the Williams, I think it's called the Zika Center, which is their environmental nonprofit, basically working to insulate homes and make energy more affordable in certain other regard. I worked with students from Williams to basically organize space to then make these what are called window dressing units, which are pieces of a square of balsa wood that's wrapped in plastic, which then fits snugly in a window and adds an extra layer of insulation on the window to make sure that none of the heat is really getting out. And this can save a tremendous amount of money for an individual, and especially for a family that has a house that's like many of the houses here, uh, not built in a way that's really like prioritizing energy savings. And we also, through that, cooperation with Williams did the environmental climate energy savings fair as a part of Berkshire Food Project. So what we did is we had tons of literature and pamphlets about different uh, ways that people can insulate their homes better and do stuff like that. But we also were able to bring in people from MassSave, which focuses a lot on energy efficiency when it comes to electronic appliances, heating, all that stuff. So we gave community members information regarding energy audits they could get on their home that are come at no price and are paid for by the state. And also gave out free light bulbs and stuff like that that are energy saving light bulbs and just some other stuff like that. And 
it was really great because we were very much able to help like a lot of people who don't have the time to like really read all the lowdown on what how to save energy and do all that type of stuff. So in that way, it's, it really feels like you're giving back because you're basically putting or setting these people up to have more money in their pocket, which is at the end of the day, I think really what priority should be, especially with environmental issues is like not everyone can afford a Tesla. We need to make it so that it's a more economically friendly model to be energy efficient. And so with that project, I definitely felt like it was, yeah, we were able to help a lot. Where do you see your future lie when it comes to making your impact on the idea of sustainable development and with the environment, the ecosystem that we work with and live in each and every day? Yeah, I'm also still trying to figure that out as well. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, no, so I applied to a couple of grad schools and hoping to hear back from that. But I also have other job opportunities that are lined up working in the environmental organizing space and also in the environmental policy space. And that's something that I really stress enough is you're really interested in environmental issues and you feel like it's a pressing issue, go into environmental policy. Learn as much as you possibly can. Knowledge is the best weapon that an individual person can have in these types of situations. So for me, like I see myself hopefully be able to organize or at least facilitate positive change towards environmental system ability and environmentally. I am interested in planning. I'm interested in being able to work in like local small dark. A couple of friends who work in North um, that a couple of friends who work out in Polio in the state of Madison. Yeah. So I really want to try to start at the local level. I've had the opportunity to run for city council. I turned it down because I know that I don't know a lot about specifically like North Allen's politics. I live here besides going to school here. So I feel like there's definitely someone better for the job in that regard than me. But I feel like getting involved at the local level is definitely in my future, continuing the past. But further into the future, I hope to be able to work in a field that I'll able to be able to bring a lot of environmental enthusiasm and want for environmental protection. I like planning, community organizing. I plan on doing all those things. Hopefully community organizing is something I really have a passion for. Even if I have a professional job that doesn't really have anything to do with community organizing, it's something that I'm going to continue trying to volunteer and leave this world a better place the way I found it. Thank you, Jack Anderson and Owen Brown. And thank you to Laura Dubester, Nancy Nylon, and Ashley Muspratt. And thanks to you, our listeners. For the next several months, you can expect to find a new episode every month on the second Saturday of the month. Subscribe to Living Well into the Future wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode. Please give us a five-star rating while you're there so other people can find us. You can find out more information about our guests and links to the entities we mentioned on the Living Well into the Future tab on the Berkshire Ollie website, berkshireolly.org. That's berkshireolly.org. You'll find this and future episodes of Living Well into the Future on WTBRFM.com, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. You can even ask your smart device to play Living Well into the Future podcast. Our thanks from me, Julie B. Adler, to Berkshire Ali and WTBR-FM 89.7 FM Pittsfield for their support. This podcast is produced by Julie Copenheffer. Thanks to our production team and 
our intern, Owen Brown. Our music is written and performed by Michael Koppenheffer. Our graphics are by Gene Rossow. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and not of WTBR, Berkshire Alley, or the LWITF production team. <laughs>